Welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast where we talk about all the things that scare the shit out of us, like my microphone that's turning pink and purple and blue that's scaring the shit out of Marie. Yeah. Uh, What are you fearing today, Marie? Well, over the weekend, I saw a movie that revived a fear that I have. I actually saw two movies that revived fears that I have. I saw 13 Lives and I saw a movie called Fire of Love. So 13 Lives is about the kids that were trapped in the cave in Thailand. Terrifying. And similarly, you know, volcanoes are kind of cave-like. They're like deadly caves in a way. Sure. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so that's probably not a good description. (laughs) There's this new documentary about some volcanologists that we could go see. I was like, uh... You say that, and I think Star Trek. Volcanologists, do they just walk around (laughs) talking in a made-up language like they're on Star Trek? I do have a pointed ear, and my dad was very excited when I was born with one pointed ear because he thought I was half Vulcan, but it has nothing to do with that. You have one pointed ear? Yeah. The cartilage on one of my ears grows into a point. Do you see? Yeah, I've never noticed that before. I get a lot of Star Trek guys that are into me because of that. It's cute. It's like you're a little uh, little sprightly little, not elf. What are you? Is it an elf? or an elf. elf, yeah, elf. Okay, it's like that yeah. word didn't like sound right as I was saying it. Anyway, all right, uh, volcanologist. Oh, yes, 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 volcanologist. <laughs> Fire love is what it's called. But it's about these two scientists, um, Katia and Maurice Kraft. And in the 1970s, this couple met at a cafe and found out over coffee, not only did they live in the same town, but they were both scientists who studied volcanoes. How fortuitous is that, right? Right. So the thing that made them different from other volcanologists is they were constantly coming up with equipment and techniques for getting closer and closer and closer to volcanoes. Nope. Here's a picture nope. of how close they were getting <gasps> to volcanoes. That's crazy, right? Uh-uh. It looks uh-uh, like nope. a sci-fi. It looks like a sci-fi movie in, at points. So here's another one. She's just hanging out on the edge of a volcano. Why? So... I mean, I've so, I just, so many questions, but, but why? They thought the only way to unlock why volcanoes erupt is to get as close to it as possible. So it's not like you can just lower a camera into a volcano. You kind of have to get as close as possible to observe it, or at least that's what they thought. Some of their colleagues were not fans. They actually became legitimate filmmakers and they started making films of them camping in the volcanoes and stuff and it became educational videos so they have actually been credited with their program for governments on how to plan for volcano eruptions has been credited with saving a lot of lives but Hmm. the the footage of the volcanoes is mortifying absolutely mortifying but anyway i recommend it and the weird thing on netflix or do you have to go to the theater it's in theaters right now Hmm, okay. The movie itself is really great as an educational tool. Like, first of all, it's super cool. The music that they choose, the documentarian is super cool. She edited it together in a really great way. By the end of it, I understood a lot of things about volcanoes that I didn't know before. Hmm. Like the ash that comes out of the volcanoes is like the highest level of nutrition for the soil on the planet. So even though the volcano itself is like deadly to humans and kills all this life, the fact that it blows up into the environment actually reinvigorates the soil. So like in Mount St. Helens and different places where there was um, the explosions, 
people were having like bumper crops the next year, like giant radishes and stuff like that because the soil was so incredibly fertile. Oh my goodness. I'm telling you, <laughs> this is a, like, it's, this is a super interesting um, documentary. I mean, oh. get some popcorn and like settle into it. Okay. So um, what are you fearing uh, today, Becky? I think I'm fearing something around cognitive dissonance and the fact that so much of the world that we live in right now is because of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So first of all, can you define cognitive dissonance? Yes, I absolutely can. So cognitive dissonance is the discomfort that you feel or that you experience when you have two conflicting thoughts that try to exist in your mind at the same time. Two thoughts that can't match up, right? Yeah. So like, it's why we want to argue with our best friend if they disagree with us on something political, right? Because the conflicting thoughts are, you know, I love you and I think you're smart. And yet you have this view that makes me not like you. And I have to put those two together. So I ignore the fact that you and I disagree politically on that particular topic. I argue against it. I try to change your mind, right? So I have to fight that dissonance. Right. The reason why we wanted to talk about this is because of the HBO documentary Mind Over Murder, which is a cognitive dissonance palooza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So spoiler alert, uh, but it's a, it's a documentary. So it's not like we're giving away the plot of a movie. It's one of the prime examples of cognitive dissonance and you can actually watch it unfold in real time. Do you watch it happen? Want to sum up the details of the yes. crime? In 1985, a woman by the name of Helen Wilson went home after spending time with her family and family members were trying to reach her to remind her to take her medicine. And then the next day they were trying to reach her and, and she wasn't answering and this was unusual to them. She was kind of the matriarchal grandmother figure of the family. So yeah, like this woman was just like the, to me, the prototypical grandma. Yeah. Just, she was close to her family. They all took care of her and loved her. And she lived in this tiny apartment in the tiny town of the inexplicably named Beatrice. And, and so you would think living in that tiny town, in that apartment building, she's safe as a kitten. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So the next morning, the police found her dead body. She had been raped multiple times and violently murdered. And so... They started investigating and they had leads, but it just wasn't going anywhere. And there was a local guy by the name of Burdett Searcy. Everyone called him Bert Searcy. And at the time he was retired from, or he had left the police force. Yeah. And I correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know if he was just annoying to the other people or if there- They did make it seem like he was not well liked, but- I don't know if they ever made it very clear. I think they said he was just not very well liked. There was something off about him, but he'd left that particular police force and then this yes. murder happened. Yeah, This murder happened and, and he took it on himself. He didn't even get the family to hire him initially. He just started doing private investigation work on his own. And well, then he joined, then he joined another police, like he joined like the sheriff or whatever, right? I mean, he went from one to the other in the local area. Yeah, so he just said, decided he was going to do it. And I think one of the things was he had gone to the local police with the evidence that he had gathered and they were just like, nah. So the sheriff's department was a little more receptive to what he had to say. And they were like, go for it, you know. So a local woman, I don't know if you would say woman or girl, I think she was 17 at the time. 
gave him a tip that a woman by the name of Joanne Taylor and some of her friends had done the crime and that she had seen the car of one of these people in front of Helen Wilson's apartment complex at the time of the crime. And that Joanne Taylor had confessed to her. And she just literally looked at her that morning, supposedly, and said, oh yeah, I did it, or something like that. Like, that. <laughs> what? But the whole thing spiraled, spiraled, spiraled. So one person led to another person. It's almost like in Nazi Germany or Russia or one of these places where um, you have to give up names or even what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Torture people until they give up names. And or so the Red Scare here in the U.S., the McCarthyism. Yeah. If you didn't give up another name, then they assumed you were one of them or something. So people right. just started throwing names out. Exactly. It's exactly. And there was a very strange confluence of events that made Bert decide how to pursue some of these other people. Because remember the one guy was a part of a, he and a dude rolled a guy. And Bert decided if he's capable of rolling this guy after pretending to offer him sex, then they're capable of raping and murdering a grandma. Like he just put five and four together and got 38. Yeah. And it was like, what? And then that confession. And then anyway, so it's all based on these confessions. It's all based on confessions and naming the other people during that confession. That's all this is based on. No evidence, just that. Yeah. I think this happens all the time in law enforcement, poor people and people that are not well liked in a community or people who have committed crimes, just they're good for it. That's the attitude. I mean, this guy, Joseph White, it's like a tutorial on how to have sex in a video store if, if you want to. <laughs> yeah. You totally put your foot thing. under the door and that lets the person know. <laughs> I mean, it's very specific. Yeah. But, but the weird part for me and what made me go from the beginning, because I didn't know this was a false confession thing when I started watching the first episode. I, I didn't know where we were going with it, really. That none of these people were really friends. It's not like you had a gang of people. They just kind of named people, you know? It was like, they were not a group of people who went around in this town committing crimes all over the place. Yeah. They went to school and they smoked cigarettes and, you know, generally acted a fool. And a couple of them were... Not, I don't know if we'd say special needs, but but definitely mentally slower. So the the Beatrice Six, it's the six people that through a series of people lying and false confessing became the prime suspects who ended up going to jail for the murder and rape of Helen Wilson. You have Joseph White, who refused to do a confession, maintained his innocence. So because he did that, he became the main target. He became the rapist. He became the murderer. So Thomas Winslow is an example of somebody who just makes a bad, bad choice. I think he thought he was going to be able to negotiate his way out of this. He already had this other charge and he was being threatened. And I think he thought, as a lot of people who are being interrogated think, well, if I just tell them a little bit of what they want to hear, then maybe they'll let me go home. Maybe I can get out of this. I've read articles about this where someone is getting like a minor charge against them and it's just easy for them to just accept the charge. Then yeah. to pay the bail, to do all the things that they have to do to go through all of it. There's a videotape where Thomas Winslow does some confessing and then 
immediately realize he's he's fucked himself comes back the next day and admits that all the stuff he said wasn't true but at that point it's too late this is one of the things that is always so bizarre to me about false confessions is when somebody does a confession and then immediately says no 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 I didn't why do we only believe the confession? Right. Why, why do we believe that is gospel truth? But then the 50,000 times they say, no, I didn't do it. Oh, you're lying there. That to me is so hard to get my head around why we can't accept that this is the truth, but not that. We only believe the thing that's incriminating. That part is just like, but, you know? Most people would say, if you didn't do it, why would you say you did it? But anyway, so you have Joseph and Thomas now are saying they didn't do it. So now Thomas now becomes a rapist and a part of the plot to murder Helen Wilson. So the other people in this story, James Dean, Kathy Gonzalez, Deborah Sheldon, and Joanne Taylor, basically they're all people who are being extremely manipulated by Bert Searcy. Oh my gosh, y'all. The videos of this, this guy, this cop, Bert, if he didn't like what they were saying, like, what kind of car were you driving? It was a blue Chevy. I'm going to turn the tape off for a second. And then they came back and she was like, oh no, it was a, it was a brown Honda or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) He was showing them evidence. It's, it's classic feeding evidence. So of course, how do these people know details? Because they're being shown the details. They're being told. But they need an added level of persuasion here. So in comes the police psychologist. Is that what you would say he is? Is that what he was? So there was a police psychologist who was treating some of the, he was actually Deborah Sheldon. Her children got put into protective custody and he was the psychologist that evaluated her. He did have a relationship with her prior to this. And he had diagnosed her with some slowness, but also some delusional type of, um, was it borderline personality or something like that? She was, it was some sort of delusions. He was saying she wasn't capable of making rational decisions. I mean, it was the whole battery of things and she lost custody of her child. He actually went into her prison cell as well as the other defendants and basically told them that if they're seeing stuff in their dreams about this murder, then they probably did it. He planted some seeds with them that they were crazy, that they were there and they were crazy. And so let's talk about real quick, how that right there relates to cognitive dissonance. Because you're asking people who, who for the most part, these are not cognitively complex people. I'm not going to speak to anything else about their necessarily their intelligence or whatever, but these were not cognitively complex people and you're handing them cognitive dissonance because in their minds they don't have any memory of this thing because they weren't there but then you give them a memory and it lives inside of their brain and how do they put those two together if I was not there how do I have these memories and that is a difficult thing to overcome I know that everyone loves to people love to say well if you didn't do it why would you confess memory is malleable People can hand you a memory and it gets implanted in your brain and it changes what you understand to be true and real. And we think that it's not a thing. It it is a thing. It's a thing and it's been a thing since the beginning of brains and humans. And part of it is when cognitive dissonance appears, you have to get rid of it. 
you have to make two thoughts match up. And so how do they make those two thoughts match up and get back to an even keel? Oh, well, I must've done it. Right. You know, there's lots of rape victims that get told by the police, this is the guy. And then that becomes the guy for them. Yes. His face becomes who it was that did it. Yeah. Yes. Even after they find out through DNA, it was this guy in their nightmares or whatever, they still see the guy that the police said is the guy. So anyone can be brainwashed. Yep. Anyone can. If you don't think you can be, look, some people are a little more savvy. And a lot of this has to do with money and education. For the most part, you and I know what our rights are. And we would lawyer up and we would have the means to fight it, but not everyone does. Like, I think Kathy Gonzalez was told, your blood was found in the apartment. Your blood was on the wall. Your blood was, you know, on this and that. So how did your blood get in there? Explain that to us. So if she's not a super savvy, super educated person, she's probably like, I don't know how my blood got in there. I must have been there. Right. And then you have this other thing that police do, which is I've got this person in the other room and they're saying you did this. And then the other person is like, well, shoot, I better say this person did it or that then I'm going to get all the credit for it. So there's a lot of that going on as well. And then once you get yourself on videotape saying you did it. Yep. (laughs) All the DA needed was that. That's it. Right. Exactly. We're forcing the jury to have dissonance with they said they did it and right. they're Jury's how do i dissonance you know <laughs> yeah. so anyway sorry we're kind of got off track there a little bit but they go to prison y'all just on the confessions and joseph white who maintained his innocence well the cops had all of these people testifying against him because they went on the stand and said he did it so of yeah. course he was convicted so think about a party right You invite six people over and it goes badly, right? A rape and a murder happens. There's not a- that's a bad party. (laughs) (laughs) Becky has some wild parties so far. I mean, she's had some wild parties, but good God almighty. (laughs) I mean, I'm just being ridiculous to make a point. I know. Because the police are trying to say, oh, there were six coffee cups in the sink. I mean- If I heard about those six coffee cups one more fucking time, Somebody did a party trick with a, you know, with a $5 bill. There was like supposedly all this evidence that these six people were there. However, the police found 0.0 physical evidence that these people were there. Like literally zero. 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 So Dr. Rena Roy is the Nebraska state forensic scientist who analyzed the evidence at the time in 1985 was never called to the stand. And she told prosecutors, none of the defendants were a match for the blood or the semen. So she just wasn't called to the stand. And by the way, in 1985, you could do DNA evidence, but the prosecutor, Dick Smith said, nah, we're not going to do that. So anybody that didn't support the view of Bert Searcy and Wayne Price and the police department and Dick Smith, just that evidence did not appear on the trial. And the preferred way of dealing with crimes is to make deals. The prosecution and the public defenders don't care if someone is guilty or innocent. They just want to take things off the book. So a lot of poor people are forced 
to just plead to things they didn't do and accept a record because they can't afford bail. They can't afford any of the stuff that they would need to do to win the case in the first place. Public defenders are culpable in this. They don't get paid very much money, so they want to be done with it as quickly as possible, too. If they end up taking a case that goes on for a year, they're not going to be able to pay their bills. This is not a great system to defend people who are poor or don't have resources. And all these people in the Beatrice Six fit that profile. So the only way these people win their cases eventually or get exonerated is by people donating their legal services and caring. Yep. And then after they had spent, how long do they end up spending in prison? Let's see. 20 years? I think Joseph White and Thomas Winslow spent like 20 years. Joanne Taylor also had a very high sentence, but James Dean, Kathy Gonzalez, and Deborah Sheldon, I think spent like five years, five or six years. Unbelievable. Yeah. Let it down by offering evidence right to convict the other guys yeah 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 right and their stories were that they didn't really participate they were shocked by it but they saw it they were more like accessory yeah if y'all watch this show and you see the tiny tiny apartment and they show photos of her laying on the ground and she was strangled but it is not a crime that a group of six people including three women committed it's just not i don't have to be a criminal profiler or an expert in shit other than humans to tell you what didn't happen is six people did not go into that apartment, make zero noise, first of all, that none of the neighbors heard any of it, rape and murder this woman, or watch somebody else do it, and then go make yourself six cups of coffee. Not a thing. That is not a thing. Just use your brain, you know? Then we're back to confession. You can't get past the confession. The cognitive dissonance will not allow us to get past the confession. Well, right. And it's really simple. She was raped more than once. If the semen collected is the same, then it's one person. And the blood that's found around the place is only hers and one other person's blood. Yep. I just don't know that many cases where five people come along to watch a dude rape and murder someone violently in a tiny apartment. Do we know many? It's not a thing. Especially grandmas, because when grandmas get murdered, when elderly people get raped and murdered, they are raped and murdered by a young man, usually a teenager or early 20s. That's the thing. Groups of people don't go and murder grandmas. It's just not a thing. Right. And when group stuff happens, it's more like a party that's gotten out of control and a passed out girl, things like that. But it's not like serial killer type stuff. It's a whole different type of crime. And police have known for decades that when you find an elderly woman raped, it's a young man who did it. That's who you're looking for. And spoiler alert, skip the next minute. Of, they knew who did it. They had him. And they sent that to a police chemist who was disgraced in the years after because she eliminated people who should have been included. And she told them, this guy here didn't do it. And so they didn't pursue it. And that's who turned out had done it the whole time. Right. But this police chemist falsified evidence for decades. And this was one of those cases. And again, falsification of scientific evidence is another thing that comes up in all of these cases as well. So now for the spoiler alert, after many, many years and a lot of brave people fighting for the Beatrice Six, in 2016, they were exonerated by DNA evidence. And a man by the name of Bruce Allen Smith was revealed as the person who did it. 
as the sole perpetrator person. It's his blood. And they Amen. had him in their sights. He had come into that town, done the rape and the murder, and disappeared back to, I don't know, Oklahoma or Texas. And they had him in their sights. And he was exonerated by this police chemist who just was like, meh. I think she just woke up every morning and was like, I think I'll do this and this and this. And people with M names are guilty today. And the people with B names are not. And just eliminated him. Once the state police chemist was revealed to be this absolute liar, they had to throw out and redo, I mean, hundreds of cases. She testified beyond what she was capable of to secure convictions, as well as throwing out people that shouldn't have been thrown out as suspect. He committed more the damage that she did. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. It is. Like, we saw this in the um, Netflix movie about the Teresa Hallback murder. Oh, Brendan Dassey. Yeah. Speaking of false confessions. False confessions. The police planted evidence. I mean, just crazy. Yep. So now there's a civil case and the six end up getting $28 million. And so now Gage County is on the hook for paying for this. To me, if I were a member of Gage County, I'd be pretty pissed at Dick Smith and Wayne Price and Bert Searcy and the rest of the police force. I actually think that James Dean's attorney tried to go after Wayne Price and Bert Searcy to get their wages garnished, but I don't think it went anywhere. Really? Yeah. Well, the thing that is so interesting in this town, people can't handle the cognitive dissonance Mm-mm. because they had lived for so long believing these people did it. And they're told not only didn't they do it, but this town and county owed millions. The town's like, we don't have millions. And they raised the tax rate on the people who live in that town and to pay this lawsuit. Yeah. And the people in that town are like, I'm giving you money to give to these people who murdered this lady. You know, it's such a mind fuck. (laughs) You know, like if I lived in that town, I'd be fucking pissed too. But they weren't pissed at the cops. They weren't pissed at Dick. They were pissed at the six people. So now I want to give a shout out to Nanfu Wang, the director. She did One Child Nation. If you haven't seen that, it's really great. She also just did a documentary on HBO called In the Same Breath about the Chinese cover-up of coronavirus. And I haven't finished it, but it's really great. But what I like about Nanfu, and I'll tell you a couple of things. One, she's very disarming, especially in a town like Beatrice, Nebraska, where there's like probably no Asian people. (laughs) I just felt like her manner how she spoke, how she seemed non-threatening, got people to open up. I like it when she talks. When she asks questions, she does come across as very disarming. And even Bert couldn't not answer her. Like, he's like, I'm, I don't want to talk. And then she'd say something and then he'd talk, you know? Well, there's this great scene that ties into the idea of cognitive dissonance. It's near the end and she's confronting him. She's showing him evidence and she's trying to get him to admit even on some level that he has doubt because the whole time he's like well even if they didn't do the rapes they were there like he just wouldn't let it go and of course look there's liability on his part we can't discount that but he does seem conflicted and his wife flat out at the end kind of lets it go and admits that she thinks they're innocent and she really wants him to come to terms with it because He is very conflicted, you can tell. And what I thought was interesting about it, one, she seems like 
she's a small person and she's a woman and she's Asian. And I only say this because my sister's Asian. I know how a lot of white people behave, especially to people from other countries. So I think that they thought she was a pushover. That's what I think. They didn't realize this woman is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Before you tell that particular scene, let me just put together for our audience. When the police and the family of Helen Wilson, who were so determined that the six did it, were given this guy, Bruce Allen something, was the sole perpetrator. They were told, Bruce, DNA all over her, in her, everywhere, blood, it's him, it's only him. They had to do so much mental gymnastics to still have the six in that apartment. They literally said, well, they killed her and left her there. And then Bruce stumbled on her dead body and raped her. They were trying to put that together. Do you know how many times that's ever happened in the history of humanity? Zero. Yeah. When they're faced with the DNA, too much dissonance, who can live with 20 years of people in prison that didn't do something too? Yeah. And so Bert, go on, she confronts Bert. She confronts Bert and at one point, He gets up out of his seat and like starts to walk towards her, which was kind of aggressive, but she didn't seem intimidated by it at all. And when she continued to press that through him, like, I think in that moment, he realized it's like when somebody's caught in a trap, he thought they were friends and that she was just some simple person from Hollywood that was coming out there, some cute woman that he was just chatting. He could convince her. Yeah. His way of thinking. Yeah. And there was this moment where he's like, well, when you confront me like this, I'm like a turtle. I go in my shell. And she just goes, when are we going to see you outside of that shell? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I just started laughing. I was, but then he realized he looked bad. He looked like he was trying to intimidate her. So then he sat down and he, he just, he lost control. Yeah. And One of the family members was also having issues in this way too. And what Nanfu did that was brilliant was she combined this movie with the making of a local play about the Beatrix Six. And the play only uses transcripts from the trial and- The confessions. Confessions, trial, and evidence. So- They tried to convince as many people who were conflicted in that town to go to this play. And a really amazing thing happened. When people had to sit in an audience and hear the evidence, they changed their mind. Yep. First of all, watching that part of the documentary was so moving Mm -hmm. because she filmed their faces watching this play and you were watching them struggle with their dissonance. You're watching it in real time. And these are the family members. I mean. Her grandkids were, first of all, I didn't appreciate some of them. Like, why do they get money and I don't get money? I'm like, nothing happened to you, Rev. Your grandmother was murdered. Nothing happened to you. Why should somebody give you money? And there's a scene where they all sit with Bert and watch a dateline about the case. And they all sit there arguing. There's dissonance right there. They're arguing at the screen. And Bert's like, that's a lie. They did it. They did it. They did it. But when they have to, like you said, listen to the words of these confessions and the interrogation from Bert, you watch them change their minds. It's absolutely incredible. And to that point, the documentarian tried to make Bert watch some of the evidence and he started getting on his phone and ignoring it when he started hearing things he didn't like. 
And that was part of the thing where I really was like, I'm in love with this filmmaker. Because he picks up his phone like a surly teenager. And she's like, oh, I'll wait. And so he's like, no, play it. And she's like, no, I'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's got a secret weapon that she's super disarming. The reason why I wanted to bring up the townspeople watching this play and changing their mind when they heard the evidence is that in this country right now, the same thing is happening on a lot of different topics. In the sense that I have family and friends that literally don't want to hear the other side when it comes to politics. They criticize it without hearing any evidence. So I think that's one protective device of cognitive dissonance is if you just avoid ever hearing anything that conflicts with your view, then you don't have to worry. Yes, which is what we're living in right now. We're living in a country yeah that does that that's exactly right you ignore it you just ignore it and if you hear it you argue against it you just right i just thought this was interesting clclawnorthwest.edu prosecutors are deeply committed to justice and to the outcomes of their cases i think there's the cognitive dissonance right there Um, They can help identify and correct wrongful convictions and introduce policies to avoid wrongful convictions in the first place. But they have got to get over the cognitive dissonance of being committed to justice and also being committed to the outcome of their cases. We should look at every person who is in prison. If the DNA has never been tested, it's got to be tested. The part of me that has a reflex against injustice, that short circuits me. How could you argue against retesting evidence? Right. So according to usclaims.com and the Chicago Tribune, anywhere from 2 to 10% of all convictions are wrongful. At the time of this article in 2018, if it's 2%, that would be 46,000 people. If it's 10%, that would be 230,000 innocent people behind bars. Mm-mm-mm. that's insane yes and what i think people are missing the boat when the whole defund the police thing came out they were just missing the boat there is a systematic failure of the justice system in this country and it's not just police it's kind of what happened with the catholic church and the baptist church with all these sex allegations you have a few bad apples but they touch so many people and well, that phrase is funny isn't it they say, oh, it's a few bad apples. Do you know the rest of that phrase? A few bad apples does what? Spoils. You know? Spoils there you go. <laughs> so don't say it's a few bad apples. Fair enough. Fair enough. Unless, not you. I'm just saying people use that to say, oh, you know, like the cops who murdered George Floyd murdered him. Oh, it's a few bad apples. Aha. Yes. And what did those few bad apples do? They spoiled the bunch. They did. They did. And they spoiled it on a number of levels. But my point is, Instead of protecting your own, I mean, obviously the reason why people don't want DNA retested or why they don't want to appeal is because it hurts their career. It makes them look bad. And so in some cases, maybe they do have cognitive dissonance. And that's part of the problem is we need to set a standard in our justice system. Forget about the career part and justice should be the primary focus. So the prevailing attitude of police and of prosecutors should be, we want to get the right person, not we just want to get a person. And the public needs to be understanding too. 
you got to cut these people a little bit of slack and not put so much pressure on them. Yeah, that's part of the thing for me is when I hear that prosecutor say they've never lost a case, I go, oh, well, fuck you then. Fuck you. You either only take cases you know you can win, which means a lot of people were raped in your district and you didn't pursue the raper because you didn't want to lose the case, or you don't really look at everything and present the fair case for a jury and let them decide. You only push the ones that you know you're going to get convicted. So fuck you, you know? But it's also... If you ever watched Homicide Life on the Street or uh, The Wire, and I know people talk about those shows like they were documentaries, and I'm not doing that. They were created by um, David Chase, who, who was, no, he was a Baltimore crime reporter. Oh, okay. And so he was deeply involved in the actual realities of, of life on the street. And one of the things that they say on those shows is the phrase the cops will use, juking the stats. And so the stats are what matters, not whether or not something was realistically found. And so the juke and the stats thing, I mean, that's a a real thing. And so if the stats are all that matters, of course, you're going to fuck with the stats. But the thing for me in terms of what you were saying, that the whole system is fucked, is most of the time cops should not be the ones doing interrogations. That's such a specific level of knowledge and ability that if you are a detective or you've just passed your detective's exam or whatever the thing is, it doesn't mean you're qualified to walk into a room and get to the truth of something. That's a whole different skill set and ability. But we just hand it all over to the police and expect that Bert over here, Bert, fucking nincompoop, sitting there in his stupid ass flip-flops in the flower shop. I'm like, fuck you, man. You know? And what about the public defenders? So you're defending someone who could potentially get the death penalty or life in prison. You don't watch those interrogation tapes because clearly they didn't watch the interrogation tapes or they would have called out the fact that it was stopped and restarted. You're going to actually allow somebody to pin a murder on your client based on blood type. I mean, how ignorant is that? Like, why wouldn't they push for DNA testing? Why wouldn't they put Raina Roy on the stand? Why didn't the defense put the woman who said these people were not there on the stand? So major negligent counsel for all these people. And and they trusted. Think about like priest, doctor, lawyer. Those are like categories that people believe in and trust in. And especially somebody that's wrongly convicted. This is the only defense that they have. And if that person doesn't give two shits about even bringing a witness on the stand, if they, I mean, do they have cognitive dissonance? Are they like, well, you know, they're probably good for something. Or, I mean, everyone says they did it, so they probably did it. I'm fine with not. Oh, I think a lot of lawyers are fighting them with the defense. They probably think, oh, they did it. So at least I'm just going to get them a reduced sentence and that's my job. I'm done here. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to just real quick point out somebody who's the hero of this story. I couldn't find her name. It was the police officer who was very close to Bert and her husband and Bert's wife were all a happy family. They're best friends. And then she didn't say talk. her name, but I can't find, I Googled it. I couldn't find her name. So at one point he looked at the crime scene photos and she's like, there's not six cups of coffee here. What are you talking about? And then she looked at the confession tapes, which apparently, like you said, nobody had done. And she's like, this is classic feeding information, classic false confession strategies of, you know, turn off the camera, 
come back. They changed their mind. That one in particular, that woman who described a car and something else very much in depth. And it was the wrong description. And he turns off the tape, comes back. And then she very specifically describes exactly the car that he wanted her to describe. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if her defense attorney had any wits about him or her, this would never happen. They would have watched that, showed that. Like I said, I'm saying they're not cognitively complex people. And if a defense attorney had any wits about them, they would have watched those tapes and seen the descriptions change when the tapes were stopped and then turned back on and said, what are we doing here? This is ridiculous. But it's also true, though, that in the decades since this case, there has been a lot of research that has been done on false confessions and false memories. And they probably really didn't know back then, necessarily, um, that you do confess to things you didn't. People do. It happens all the time. And as soon as you let them out of the room, they go, wait, I didn't do it. But when you're in the room and you're under the pressure. And then who was that one woman who claimed that somebody had confessed to her outside the thing i'm like they showed her interview a couple of times and it was obvious she was making stuff up he should be charged with perjury yeah yes we need police reform for sure but we also need prosecutorial reform yes and have prosec- way too much latitude yeah to decide what gets prosecuted what doesn't what to charge somebody with all that yes oh And if the motivation of a lot of police officers is getting their stats and the motivation of a lot of prosecutors is winning and their career, so making mistakes is one thing, right? That's what they're concerned about. So a prosecutor is concerned that a mistake is made and someone gets convicted and they're in trouble. But there's a difference between that and actively not providing evidence actively trying to stop the investigation, actively trying to thwart an exoneration, those should be things that are punishable. Yep. Did you find the, the, the police officer's name who investigated? I know I can't find it anywhere. Ugh. Sorry. Um, but she comes in in the last couple of episodes and she is a fucking badass. She crosses that thin blue line and is like, this is not right. And the fact that not every cop behaves that way and not every investigator behaves that way, really difficult to get my head around, but it's a big fucking thing. And if you are a cop that investigates other cops, you're dirt to them. Yeah, it's got to fucking change, y'all. This is ridiculous. This is a cultural thing. It happens in other areas. I just want to point out. So here in Los Angeles, we really do value teachers a lot more than other states, but we go so far to the extreme that if a teacher is accused of doing something, it's very hard to fire them. And they have like rooms downtown where the teachers just go sit and draw a salary. And the teachers, the teachers unions are like protect the teachers no matter what. And in churches, we have not only Catholic church, but we have the whole Baptist church thing that's come up recently. They're still grappling with language over like admitting that women were abused. It's crazy. That's true. That's true. Okay. All industries, let's just say most well, all the Hollywood, Hollywood. They, they close ranks. But when the people closing the ranks are the ones who enforce the law, that's got to fucking change. That's the problem. Right. You can't just close ranks when you're the ones enforcing the law and you get to pick and choose how you enforce the law or who you inflict the law upon. You know, that's the problem. Yeah. But like we need to, it's okay to say I had a view. I'm wrong. I believe something because of this, this, and this. Now that I hear this, you know what? I'm wrong. We have to change our culture and we have to change police and prosecution culture so that people are allowed to do that. 
they want to see their perspective as well because yeah. the public is really really tough and they should be but i was thinking about a uh, mayor of east town how she really yeah. was investigating these constantly it's all she thought about was investigating these missing women but the town was just like so shitty to her you know and so people can like lose their jobs and they can be ostracized in their community for not solving a crime even though they're trying really hard and they're doing their best but they just don't have the evidence that's a good example is mayor of east town and then at the end remember when she figured out i'm not going to give it away when she figured out who did it that still caused the people surrounding that to resent her for solving it because they didn't like the answer you know she still paid a price so okay that's good let's maybe wrap this up in a second but before we do i'm going to undo some of my cop stuff not undo, augment, that I don't want it to sound like we are anti-cop. No, I'm, I'm, most cops are doing a great job. And most cops want to solve the fucking cases. We're talking about the people who are involved in cases such as this, who maybe began by believing that they actually were finding the right people. Yeah. And Bert pursued this because he believed that these were the right people. But you can't ignore the evidence that points you in another direction. And that even to this day, I don't know if he is able to reconcile the dissonance of mm-hmm. I did wrong. I did wrong and people paid a price. Right. Um, when you watch the thing or any situation like this, people fight the dissonance and they'll argue with it. Like, well, jury found him. That's it, jury. And then they think, oh, you know, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. The jury convicted them. Right. Like you tell yourself all the things in order to not have to deal with admitting you're wrong. That needs to change in particular whenever it's people who are putting people in fucking prison. And then the guys over here, um, Thomas told a story about the first time he was raped in prison and then apparently kept happening. And then in another trial, the attorney literally said, I'm glad he was raped in prison. That yeah. made me want to puke. I'm so fucking tired of us not caring about people once they go to prison. And we go, oh, prison justice, you know, you'll get raped, whatever. I'm sorry, that makes me just... But when I run against Ted Cruz... That'll be one of my platforms. I'll be the only person standing on the, the floor of the Congress arguing for the rights of prisoners because I'm tired of this. And the heat wave that's going on in Texas right now that 70% of, I think 70% of prisons don't have air conditioning in Texas. And it's 112. How is I mean, that? I know we want to punish them, but they're either a danger to society and need to never be let go or- They need to be rehabbed or whatever the word is, yeah. Yeah, we need to consider- what they're going to be like and I don't think that being raped and abused and engaging in like it's like criminal activity camp basically well yeah I mean that's a whole other show we could do on that but I think I think when we look at who is in prison we need to relook at every case where the only reason they're in prison is a confession or the testimony of somebody without any semblance of other evidence or other witnesses or other physical evidence or anything it can't just be the word of somebody you know think about we're talking about the life of a person being ruined yes the life being taken away we should Uh hold that in the highest regard in terms of re-examining evidence yes and not impede people trying to yes find justice and find the truth Yes. And just as a general statement across the board as a country, look at the evidence. Even if you disagree with the opposition politically or personally or within your church, something going on there, even if you feel strongly, this pastor didn't molest this girl or this person didn't do this or whatever, 
just hear the other side's evidence. If you hear the other side and you still feel strongly, fine. Yep. But at least you can justifiably say, I know what the other side is saying. I've heard it and I disagree. And actually that's going to be a lot easier for you personally. Then you're not going to have cognitive dissonance. You're not going to have this like crazy struggle with family and friends that you disagree with. It's kind of like the example you gave, which I like a lot. Say I say a political view and you're like disagreeing with it, but you like me. But if I have thoughtfully considered my political view, then we can just agree to disagree and not have cognitive dissonance. One of the signs of a mature, intellectually mature person is the ability to live with cognitive dissonance. When you study or try to learn interpersonal relationships and improve that aspect of your life. One of the things I would say to people is get comfortable with cognitive dissonance with regards to the people in your life. Get comfortable with the fact that they don't have to be perfect if you just like one aspect of them. You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. You don't have to debate every last thing. Part of it is cognitive dissonance. When we sit down at the Thanksgiving table or the whatever with people we usually don't spend our time with, you know, our, our family of origin, we are spurred on by our discomfort with two conflicting thoughts that we feel like we have to press the matter or we have to bring something up or we have to make a remark about every last thing. It comes down to cognitive dissonance. It really does. And it's something that is present in your life all day long, all the time. And usually it's not a big deal. We ignore it. But then the big deals are the ones I'm trying to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, on a show where I tell you I don't give advice and I always give advice and then I tell you not to listen to the advice is get comfortable with the cognitive dissonance. That includes admitting you're wrong, that you were wrong. And it's one of the reasons why we have a difficult time apologizing is because we have to admit we're wrong, which means, wait, I'm a good person, but there's a distance there of I did something wrong, Yeah, you know, so. And to that point, like I mentioned, politicians, preachers, people in positions of power, like police officers and prosecutors, you may value your career as like your number one value. But if you also value justice, the constitution, the Bible, whatever it is, then you have to set your career aside and do the right thing. And, and yeah. your, yes, your morality, your ethics, yes, yeah. need to be at front and center of every decision you make when you are the one carrying someone's future in your hands. Yeah. You know? I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. Certainly a police officer that's going to report the bad behavior of another police officer knows the consequences of that. Yes. I know it's political, but it's just an example, people. So don't get upset. Liz Cheney is potentially ending her career by standing up for a principle that she believes in. You can disagree with her. But but that's a good example, isn't it? That's a really good example. She is one big cognitive dissonance for a lot of people on both sides. She is so- People who, who she was lockstep with Donald Trump voting every way he wanted her to vote. So people were like, yay, MAGA. But now she's doing this. They can't dissonance that, right? And then those of us who disagreed with every vote she ever made are like, why is she the voice of reason right now? There's dissonance there. You know? totally. <laughs> well, totally, because I read an article recently that her number one donors right now are California liberals. Yep, I read that too. Talk about cognitive dissonance. They're like, but, I disagree with every vote you ever made, but here's money because you're doing the right fucking thing. Yeah, I mean, there is nothing that someone that is extremely liberal in California agrees with Liz Cheney on. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't think anyone can justifiably disagree with me on this. Liz Cheney is way, way, way more conservative than Donald Trump. 
she just is. I mean, yeah. Donald Trump. I'm over here nodding. Like I, audience can hear me nodding. No, yes. I, I need to speak out loud. <laughs> I mean, Donald Trump says whatever is expedient for him. I mean, I remember being, I don't remember which rally. It was like one of those um, CPACs or whatever that I was watching. And this was when Ivanka still had some influence and she wanted him to give a call out to the LGBTQ plus community. And he made a comment about how we need to be respectful of the LGBT community plus community. He screwed it up too. But anyway, he made that, that statement and the crowd booed. And he never said anything like that again. My point is, I appreciate seeing people who make decisions based on strongly held value that preserve something like the constitution as opposed to only thinking about their career. And same thing, if the Beatrice, if Dick Smith had thought more about justice, then we wouldn't be, his community wouldn't be paying $28 million mm-hmm. to Beatrice Six and six people's lives would not have been ruined. Yes. So. And- Go ahead. That's all. Just think about it. Like if, if people that are really, really something that you believe, conservative, Christian, whatever, and they're telling you this is wrong. Yep. Just think about it. Hear what they have to say. Don't yep. block yourself off to hearing what they have to say. You might find that you don't really have to change that many things. Like maybe there's just one thing you need to eliminate from your life or one thing you need to change that's wrong and all the other things you believe can stay the same like for instance just eliminate rapists and child molesters and then you can go on the same you don't have to change the other beliefs or eliminate also let's start how about this don't tie your entire identity to being right if you are wrong about something that means everything about you has to be questioned you know that's not good for anybody well we're all wrong all the time On both sides, on both sides, if you're a conservative or a liberal, why do I have to agree with a single politician or I'm suddenly no longer a part of that community? Mm -hmm. That makes no sense to me. Well, speaking of dissonance, one of the other things I was going to bring up, but where this show ended up being long enough, but is the wackadoo level of of QAnon of JFK Jr.'s alive and he's going to show up at Dealey Plaza in Dallas. And then, of course, he didn't on the anniversary of JFK's death because, A, why would he? And, B, why would he show up there if he's going to show up anywhere? It's not going to be where his father, you know, his head was blown off. Um, But then it didn't happen. But then there's too much dissonance in saying, oh, I was wrong. So then they just moved the finish line. You know, they moved the goalpost. Well, he'll be back for 2024. You know, they just like, because it's too much dissonance that you've dedicated so much of your time and money and energy and everything to, to say, this was completely wrong. This is part of what what cults do, but it's also why I'm saying don't attach your entire identity to one thing because when it falls apart, you know what, Marie, when we talked about breakups in our last episode, we were talking about, um, I named it um, in which Marie overhears a murder plot and I will rat you out, is part of why breakups are so difficult is cognitive dissonance. And part of why Brenda Delgado was so invested in Ricky, her ex-boyfriend, was because of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I believe he'll love me forever. He doesn't love me anymore. You can't live with those two conflicting thoughts, you know? Um, So before we wrap it up, I have an announcement. 
I actually told you this last week, but we're going to pretend like I didn't because we're not going to do that episode. We're not releasing that episode. Um, I have started a Substack newsletter called Interpersonal. I'll put the link on our website, hearthispodcast.com. And it kind of actually relates back to what we were, I was just trying to say about trying to live a more peaceful life. Um, but if you're living in chaos with your relationships and you don't want to be living in that chaos, subscribe to my Substack, um, Interpersonal, the newsletter. And you can get advice about how to have more peaceful relationships, better relationships, not to worry, have a whole thing dedicated to worry and how to get out of a controlling situation, how to not be a controlling person. Those are the kinds of topics that we're going to cover. If you are a people pleaser, you need to read this newsletter because I can get you out of that too. Um, if you would like to do that, I would very much appreciate um, looking me up and reading some of my pieces. I really want people to learn the lessons I used to teach in my interpersonal classes all those years and just calm down and live a calmer, more peaceful life. So anyway. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you're mentioning this on this episode, because I don't think we really intended to tie it in in such a way, but it takes a lot for an individual to analyze themselves and go, you know what, why does this keep happening to me? Or why am I always in this situation? Why am I the common denominator in all my failed relationships? (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Well, I had a student, let me tell this one little story about dissonance before I get us, get us out of here is I had a student argue with me about cognitive dissonance. He said he didn't believe in it. That's uh, cognitive you dissonance. Sit with that. I know. That's the point. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really like, meta. Like, <laughs> wow. It was very, it was very strange because he, he was relating it back to his particular religion that he believed in and how if things occur, they're absolute and you don't question those things. And I was like, almost one more step, one more step. Because when new information comes in, it forces you to align it with what you already believe about the world. Yeah. And so I would tell my kids, and I, I say this in my Substack newsletter, I'm here to change your default settings because we don't have to default to arguing with everything that comes into our consciousness. We don't have to live in a place of anxiety and stress. And so here's the steps to take to do that. I can't solve your psychological problems. Go see somebody for that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just trying to give you some tools how to calm yourself down and to improve your relationships based on that. That's what I'm here for. So I know we always joke, we don't give advice or don't listen to us, but I mean, that's a bunch of bullshit, right? We absolutely want you to listen to us because we do know what we're talking about, (laughs) but that's not the point of the show. The point of the show is to dish about murder. So anyway, all right, I need to wrap this up. Yeah, it's time to wrap it up, but uh, you should definitely go to Becky's Substack. She's super knowledgeable about interpersonal communication is like really her specialty. And again, even if it just gives you one tool to improve in an area that's been causing you a lot of anxiety, it can help you with a relationship that you need to move on from or how to improve communication at work, things like that. I offer a communication-based perspective. Um, So yeah, thanks. All right. Um, Are we done? We're wrapping this up. Give us a five stars there it is five stars (laughs) give us a review if you if you like the show and uh you know go to fearthispodcast.com for life-changing content exactly that's what i was about to say how did you know that oh my god all right well we'll see you next time bye 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 bye